were in the bed just last night. And I told my wife, Janice, we spent 30 minutes doing what I thought was day. I was talking about my son, Eddie, coming to the house. He had planned this a couple weeks back, set the date on my calendar, made sure I didn't know. His muffler had fallen off his car, and he wanted me to help him put it back on. He came to the house, and he said to me, after we did that father just 30 minutes, he said to me, I could have done that on the ground. And it's true, he could have done that in his own driveway. But this is what I told Janice last night. Actually, he couldn't. I'm not bragging here, please don't hear me. There were only two bolts left in the car that needed removed. Two bolts! Seemingly, just about anyone could do that. But here's the part you know back then, they had been in that car since 2009, 13 years. And they had rusted and rusted and rusted, and they had gone through thousands of cycles of heat up, down, outside, sitting in the garage, and all that stuff for those 13 years to the point that they were rusted and they were in there really tough time. And if my son had tried to take those out of his own, he would have for sure gotten one of them off, and it would have been about a 30 minute job or a four hour job. Now remember, I started that last paragraph by saying, but if you listen to a question, you'd have to say, wow, that's quite a statement. Well, let me go on. How do I know that he would have broken that on? Because I was once 48 years of age. I once had more muscle than I had intelligence. I was once of the belief that I could do anything, and this is most important. I didn't understand what I know now. You see, I have broken off a lot of bolts. I have broken off so many bolts that I can remember my nightmares in my brain, the mess that I had to clean up that I caused. But I have remembered. In the 59 years that I've been on this earth,
having some really unfortunate mistakes. I can't identify them in these movies in particular. Oh, I probably But they were the mistakes of being a young cat. I was fortunate to accomplish the ministry at a time when many people who otherwise would have the church was in a place, and I mean, the larger church, where a lot of pastors coming in were in their 50s. They were second career people. They were people who worked with other career and served churches part time. In my first appointment, I was I was part time, and I did that church, but I was at full credit. I'll tell you why. They put up with me. They tried to teach me. But the next place, not so much. I was still just a Pastor, but wow, the older church would begin to praise John Peach. And here's one of those unfortunate mistakes. I began to believe it. <laughs> it would have been smart, I would have told them that they were just glad that every church was down on their annual we would like to have a younger pastor. That church had it. They were happy. They wouldn't tell me anything because they got what they were looking for. But unfortunately, I had a lot wrong. By the time I made it to my first real pastorate, this is what it looked like when I got there. Two very diverse churches. One church had a lot of professional people, teachers, uh, you know, people who worked in hospitals. People that were engineers, people that worked in big business, I had a lot of that. And then in this other church out in the country, I had what you might call blue collar, even rural. Um, we had a pig farm there, he also farmed eggs, you know, so I had 20, 25,000 chickens any time of day or night, you know. It, it was just two different worlds. And guess what? I could relate to both of them pretty well. And guess what? They loved that. And guess what? Guess what they told me? Man, you're great. And I began to believe. I think how sick they were. The one rural church, we couldn't find musicians. Once you imagine those professors, I played the piano in the church. And they told me it was good. I knew them better than to believe that. Eventually, somebody in the area ran this little holiness camp, used to be a Methodist camp. They asked me to come preach there. And, and, and all of those churches told them, so you gotta come here a preacher. And, and they came. And from about five years old, they asked me to come back to that camp. And, and I thought they were asking me back because I could preach. I mean, that's what I believe. That's what they told me. But let me tell you in retrospect what the truth is. I wasn't that great of a preacher. Both of those churches wanted me to believe it because they liked me, but the reality was. I, I'm probably going to preach my way out of the paper bag. And as far as playing the piano, that, that was just your worst nightmare, but it did solve the problem of going to find somebody that could. With regards to that holiness camp, they just couldn't get anybody to come. I was easy enough to ask and dumb enough to think that I really could.
my dead car over 13 years, and who knows how many miles, and all those cycles of hot and cold, hot and cold, and rust and corrosion and all those things. Eventually, all of your lack of experience, all of your lack of wisdom, will eventually lead to great astonishment. And you will spend all day trying to fix it, or perhaps the rest of your life trying to change it again. So let's stop and look at the scripture again. Mark, I'm going to ask you to go to that slide that has First Samuel 18 1 on it. It says this as soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan went to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. You will find out in this text what has just happened. This is the context. What has just happened is David, the youngest of Jesse's sons, has been sent by his father out to where his three older brothers, trained, orderly soldiers, were standing at a creek bed, looking across to see the Philistine army and their Goliath. They, they were looking to see this huge person that would come out and challenge them to come out and fight. The most intimidating, intimidating thing that Israel had seen, at least their army up to this point, was this person. These soldiers that, that David went out to bring the lunch to, that his father had sent him to, they had years of experience, years of training. They knew how to do it all. And here comes David, the young shepherd from back home, and he's brought their lunch, and he's going to deliver it. And if you read the text in 1 Samuel 17, you will hear that both armies, the Philistines and the Israel, the army of Israel, they are shouting their war cries. Both sides knew that they were coming to the battle. Both sides knew that they were about to run to the battle line. And then they hear the challenge again of, again of this one man, this giant of a man. David, the young man, stands and listens. These soldiers, this army that was coming out to hear the battle cry, when Goliath challenged them, they weren't running to the battle. They were running to the bush. David went to his brothers and the rest of the army, and as he got there, they were telling him that if any one of us could go out and beat that guy, if any one of us could win this battle for Israel, we would have all our debts forgiven, we would be given the king's daughter, and our entire family would have everything that they never owed to do. David never mentioned Listen to what David's question is. Who is this uncircumcised village king that he should defy the army of the living God? Why do all they gave that the battle that was won this day was against that Philistine? I want to challenge you to think about another battle that David's question. David's concern was for God. David's concern was for God's people. David's concern was not with enriching himself or getting the king's daughter. David's concern was this. Who is this godless Philistine to think that he can come out here and challenge the armies of God? Philistine said to David, come to me and I'll give you a question and verse the Spear and javelin is part of my spear, but I come to you 
for the God the armies of Israel to defy. This day, David said to that giant, the Lord will give you into my hand, and I will strike you down. So that all the earth will know there is a God in Israel. And that all this assembly will know that God does not say with the swords and spears, the battle is the Lord's. And the Lord will give you into my hands. You see, David understood something that was very a basic thing of necessary knowledge that he had learned across decades of time, yet out there tending his father's sheep. And it was this very simple the battle belongs to God. This very simple thing. Everything belongs to God, belongs, depends upon God and not upon me. Everything that's going to happen, I need to take my hands off and let God do what else he needs to do. And that's your context. I just told you the context of what we read. I'll read the first verse of the 11th we read. I'll just give you some technical quick. But you had to know that. Because that's what came out of it this day that we are talking about when the scripture says that David finished talking to King Saul and his soul was dead to the soul of Jonathan. What you have to understand is that this is the David that killed the Philistine. The Philistine was a great uh, uh, battle. And, and David went out and won it in the name of the Lord. Wherever Saul sent him, so Saul sent him over to men of war, and this was good in the sight of all the people and in the sight of Saul's servants. Sixth verse, they were coming home when David returned from striking down the Philistine. And the women came out of all the cities of Israel, and they were singing and dancing, singing and dancing with songs of joy and with musical instruments. And in the seventh verse, listen to what they sang. The women sang to each other as they celebrated. Saul has struck down thousands. But David has struck down his tens of thousands. Did you ever wake up in the middle of the night without a flashlight and you're not going to get out of bed? Did you ever trip over something? Stub your toe, that kind of thing? I want you to understand that. King Saul has just met David. He has just seen David win this battle. Everything's going good. You'll come home with me. Life's going to be great. His son says, yeah, you're a wonderful person. I'm going to give you everything my dad has to give to me. Everything is going good. Until they hit the street and Saul did his son. Women came out with tambourines and cymbals and all kinds of instruments, and they're singing. 
And to me, they describe thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? Like verse. I guess I'd say to you before I go on to what he said. Interesting that David didn't recognize the promises of his Saul's son Jonathan loved David. He gave him everything that would have been coming to him. Why? 
His soul was knit with David, not with Saul. And even though you and I know from history that Jonathan should have ascended to the, the throne after his father, you and I know that David was actually the second round of David. In spite of that, their friendship, David and Jonathan, their friendship that lasted the test of time, that lasted the test of treachery, the Greeks, the tree of David and Jonathan together, we find out that it also uh, lasted the test of intimidation by the king. When honor was given to David by Saul at the beginning of the story, Jonathan didn't work it out. But the minute that people loved David a little bit at all, Saul's got a problem. That splinter in his eye it turned into a psychiatry. I mean, it was just hanging out there. How angry he was. Three things I think we need to know before we ready for our Christmas message. Remember that people sang about David, not David's God. Did you hear me? When people sang about David, they said, Saul has killed his thousands. David has killed his tens of thousands. They never mentioned Bob Yahweh. They never mentioned Jehovah. They sang the phrases of David, not David's God. If you're anything like me, here's what you read. stock in the words. David doesn't walk away and say, oh, I'm going to be king. The people love me. Did you hear those ladies? Saul has killed his thousands, but I have killed my tens of thousands. David didn't say, oh, there's nothing left for me but to ascend to the throne. David just walked. He just remained who he was. And the third thing is, it's not most important, but it is critical. David put no stock in his words. Or the words, Saul killed his thousands. David killed his tens of thousands. David was smart enough to not call him that. But Saul loved him. Saul bought him hook, line, and sinker. And he did something to him. Probably was first a little bit of envy, but then it became jealousy and eventually it arrived at hatred. Like me in the kingdom, I've got five stones. I'm that first one, and whack him in the middle of the eyes. 
What happened to what that happened? The crucible?
believes what we heard him say. Who would have thought God's saving power would look like this? The servants were up before God. He was a scrawny seedling, a scrawny plant in a parched field. There was nothing attractive about him, nothing that caused us to take a second look. He was looked down on and passed over. He was a man who suffered and knew pain firsthand. One look at him. Thank mm-hmm. you. 